Dads were scarier in the 70s. Young people don't understand how scary dads were because dads today are not scary. You know, my dad could wake us up with his breathing. Saturday morning, he'd come in our bedroom. And then I'd hear his voice. He'd say, get in the car. Get in the car. It was like Darth Vader with a Boston accent. Hey, yum's the word. Haven't you heard? The yum's the word. It was started by a bird. My name is Robin. And her hair has lots of curls. Actually, I blow it out a lot. Two stories, some awkward. Like wedding the bed next to your boyfriend. Pretty funny and absurd. Like your boss tickling your side boob. So welcome all you nerds. And cool people too. This is for everyone. Except kids. Yum's the word. Hey everyone, welcome to Yum's the Word. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. So at the top, you heard Tom Shalou talking about the fact that dads were scarier in the 70s, and I can completely attest to that. My dad stands at six foot three, and I don't know how much he weighs, but he's a pretty intimidating kind of guy, and he scared the crap out of my sisters and me back in the day I mean I would be in my bedroom and I would hear him sort of like lurking down the hallway he had a very heavy footstep and you would hear his ankles crack he didn't even have to say anything and you're like oh shit what did I do I'm in trouble I was always worried about getting in trouble with him Um, and I remember in well I was like fifth or sixth grade I was in the Girl Scouts and I was selling Girl Scout cookies and some of my friends had their parents taking the forms to work So I asked my dad, and he was like, absolutely not. He's like, "Not no, like, handouts for you. You're going door to door. And I was like, okay, I can't argue with this man, you know. If he says no, that's how things went. So I was like, okay. Uh, I am proud to report that uh, I ended up getting crowned Girl Scout cookie champion that year. So he did teach me a good lesson about being a salesperson. So thanks, Raj. Anyway, on today's episode, we are going to hear a great story, and that story is about the blizzard of 78, and we're also going to pay tribute to one of the most revered storytellers who just left New York City this week because he moved to L.A. But first, here's Tom's hilarious story about an epic snowball fight during the blizzard of 78. The year was 1978. 1978 seems like not that long ago to me, but some of you probably weren't even born in 1978. Some of you are like, are you kidding? I was born in the 90s. (laughs) That's not even that. You're not that young if you were born in 1990. Do you people understand that? Guys, Colin Hanks isn't even close to being young anymore. That's what's happening with the world. So sometimes I talk about the the 70s and people are like, oh wow, that's weird. Yeah, I wasn't around uh, in the 70s. I think, my God. And you're, you're a regular person. They're not even a young person and they weren't around in the 70s. And I think, my God. The 70s was a great time though. Growing up in Boston. Boston, Massachusetts, and the winters were, the winters were, were endless there. They, they, 
we had real winters back then. Like when you had a snow day, it was like a two, it was two snow days. <laughs> they couldn't clear the snow out of the streets for two days. So when the, and we would listen to the, this was pre-internet. I love telling my daughters this. They're fascinated by all the old, all the old stories I have. <laughs> you know, my daughter, like when, with my, my phone, she won't take a picture unless she can see the screen. You know, like I'll, I'll go like this to take a picture and she'll be like, turn it around. Like she wants to see it. She's like, <laughs> she needs to see her face. And I was like, you know, the first iPhone, you couldn't even turn it around. She was like, are you kidding me? She couldn't believe how primitive the first iPhone was. And then I went on with her and I was like, forget about the first iPhone. We didn't used to have cameras on our phones. And she was like, it was like a you know, terrible thought to her. And then, I, and then I explained to her, I said, when I was a kid, we had to take pictures and there was no screen on it at all. And she was like, how do you know what the picture looked like? And I was like, you had to guess. And I was like, and then, when you wanted to see the picture, you had to wait like four months. <laughs> because your mother made you use the whole roll. <laughs> it was like 16 pictures would take 14 at the beach. And she's like, no, we're waiting for our next vacation to take these last two pictures. And she was like, and then you saw the pictures? I was like, no, then, then they came back in the mail and you had to go pick them up at a weird place at the mall. So no one understands what it was like back then. You know, we had no internet, so you couldn't find it. So the way you got, you, the way you knew school was canceled, you tuned into the radio and you would listen. You would listen for all the towns in Massachusetts. And Norwood was so, it took so long to get to Norwood. And even when they got to the ends, there were so many end towns in Norwood. There was like Norwell, Norwich, and you're like, get to the damn town. And then they would say Norwood. Oh, and we had no school for the day. But in 1978, there was a little something called the blizzard of 78. So that's why I prefaced all this with all this talk about the old days, because it used to just say the blizzard of 78, and everyone knew what you were talking about. The blizzard of 78. They knew about it. It was like, it was called the blizzard of 78 way before 78 even. <laughs> like they knew it was coming. My whole childhood, they were like, the blizzard of 78 will be here at this point. So you knew it was coming. And, you know, and then they finally said, they were like, the Bishop 78 is upon us. And I was like, oh, my God, incredible timing. And, <laughs> you know, and it was because it was 78. And then the snows came down and we knew, I mean, we knew we weren't going to have school for days and days. And then it started with the snowballs. You know, we went out and we started a snowball fight. And it was me and it was uh, uh, Little Perkins. And you know, we called each other Big and Little Link. Because everyone had older and younger brothers. So I was Little Shalou because I had an older brother. So we had, it was me, Little Perkins, and Mitagai. And Mitagai and, uh, and Perkins were my two kind of chums. And then his older brother, Chris Perkins, was kind of on the other side. It was like brother against brother. It was like the Civil War, you know? <laughs> so Big Perkins and Morrissey were fighting us in snowballs. And it was three against two, but we were a whole year younger than them. So we were still outgunned. And they were killing us with snowballs. And we, we were up in Shattuck Park, and we ran down from the park. And we were running through backyards, and they were pummeling us on the back of the head with their hard snowballs that they could pack very tight. And we took refuge in my, my basement. We ran into the cellar. And it was one of those little short cellar doors, but we, you know, we could run in it because we were little kids. And we opened up, and we ran in, and we slammed the door. And, doo -doo -doo -doo. 
and there were snowballs off the wooden door. And we were laughing, ha, 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 and dripping all over the place. And my dad came out of the office in the basement. This is my dad. My dad dwelt in the basement. He had an office down there with a key punch machine in it. And, and he came out with the curtain. He opened up the curtain, and the cigar smoke came out. And he came out, what the hell is going on here? We were dripping on his precious concrete floor. And uh, he said, what the hell is going on? He wanted us outside, you know, and I'd forgotten. I wouldn't have just gone in the basement if I knew. But of course, my dad had the day off from work, too. Usually, we had a school day, and my dad went to work anyway. But this was the blizzard of 78. <coughs> so he came walking through us, and we were like, you know, we, we parted, and he walked right through us because he heard doo, 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 off the door. Doo, doo, and he walked up, and he grabbed the door. And I was like, no, like slow-mo. I was like, oh. And he opened the door, and my father was like, yeah, I was just seeing him from behind. I was there. We were just standing there dripping wet looking. My dad was like, <laughs> and I could see through his legs. And I could see it was Morrissey and Big Perks. And they were like, ah, ha, ha, ah, ha. <laughs> and I, they went running. And my dad was like, God, he's screaming. My dad was, he was a really mean dad, you know? All dads were mean back then. Dads were scarier in the 70s. <laughs> Young people don't understand how scary dads were because dads today are not scary. You know, my dad could wake us up with his breathing. <laughs> Saturday morning, he'd come in our bedroom. And then I'd hear his voice. He'd say, get in the car. Get in the car. It was like Darth Vader with a Boston accent. <laughs> and we'd run downstairs. We'd get in the backseat of the Dodge Dart and we'd drive and no seatbelts, right? Child safety, not important in the 70s. Dad took a right, you just slid over to the left. Took a left, you slid back. It worked out. It worked. And so my dad was like, God, God, and they went running, and we were like, I mean, we held it in. We were like, hum, hum, hum. And, then, and then we ran out and passed my dad, and he slammed the door, stay out all day. And, uh, but then we ran and we were laughing. It, we couldn't believe the sight of Morrissey and Perkins through my dad's legs. And we eventually caught up to them. And because of that incident with my dad, there was a bit of a solidarity. And we went downtown to Norwood Center and we started climbing up the fire escapes on the back of the buildings in Norwood and jumping off into the snowbanks, which had formed 15, 17, 19 feet high. And we're jumping off into these soft snowbanks. It was amazing because it was enough snow, and then the plows pushed it up higher, and then the snow fell on top of that. So you had this kind of big pile, and it was very soft on top. So we're jumping off these really high buildings. Everyone except Twink. We called him Twink, John Perkins, <laughs> Little Perkins. We called him Twink. First he was Twerp, then he was Twink. Our names changed all the time. I was Tom, and then I became Tomboy, then Zomboy, and then I was Zoid. So <laughs> at this period, he was Twink because he was tired of being called twerp. So he was, he was a skinny uh, boy, and he was scared of uh, things like this. So we usually kind of gave him an out, but we really wanted him to experience the snow. So we're jumping off into the soft snow and landing, going up to our necks, ah, ha, ha, and we're encouraging Twink to jump off with us. And, you know, encouraging, we're like, you, fairy, you know. <laughs> That's the way you encourage. In the 70s, you encourage kids by calling them fairies. It seems strange now, but we were trying, that was like, we were like little Tony Robbins, you know, we were like, you fairy, because we thought that would motivate him to jump 
to, to, you know, to reach his, his goal, you know? And it's so ironic that now you can't say fairy, but it probably wouldn't even be an insult, you know? You called a boy a fairy today, he'd be like, yeah, what, like Elsa, the queen of uh, the frozen north? <laughs> like, that's great, she's tough. But back then we thought we would guilt him into jumping off into the snow. So we kept it up, you fairy, you know? And uh, finally he, he got, the, he got the, the wherewithal. He stood on the edge and he, he closed his eyes and he jumped. Now I'm in the snow right here and he's coming down. And I could tell it was not gonna go well because he just jumped and he was like this. He was floating like this. <laughs> like completely, you know, he wasn't tucking at all. You know, you have to tuck when you jump off of roofs because you kind of do cannonball and then you kind of go in like feet and butt together and, you know, and you're all tucked in. But when you're, when you're too gangly, you know, you can really get hurt. So he's coming down gangly style, you know. <laughs> Wo he's woken at gang gangly style. And, um, and I'm like, ah, you know. And, uh, and he comes down and his feet hit and immediately he starts to crunch up like that. So his feet hit first and they rush up and hit his chest. Now when your knees hit your chest, the air rushes out of you, all air just rushes out of you like a windbag, you know? And Twink was, as, did I mention he was asthmatic? He was kind of like, <laughs> he, had like a, he had lots of nasal issues. He had a lot of extra, he was a milk drinker too, a real, he never drank water, always milk. So he had that really thick snot, you know? You know, it was yellow and it had a, had a girth to it. It had, it had a thickness to it. And it was always there, like one side always had like a little, little dangler, you know, down there. The, the, yellow, the yellow ball, it looked like a little lottery ball, you know? And then he would, he would sniff and it would disappear and then it would return, you know, like a... And so he's coming down, he's coming down and his knees hit his chest and the air rushes out of his nasal passages and he hits the snow and his head jerks like that. And with the rush of air, because his mouth and his eyes were closed tight, it just shot out. And these two strands of thick putty-like snot came shooting out of his nose into the snow and they shot out and snaked into the snow. Like there was such a length to it. It was like a rope and they're Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what I saw. And then this is what happens when you get the wind knocked out of you. Involuntarily, you suck back in, you know? So it was like, like that. And he sucked in these two long strands of snow, which was now covered in frost, shot up his nose. And that's when he opened his eyes. He was like, and he didn't know what had happened. He just knew he landed and he didn't get hurt at first. But then these two snakes, these two frozen ropes had snaked its way through his head. Do you know how many miles of nasal passages you have? I think there's like, it's like 40 miles or something. He had snow going through his entire nasal cavity on both sides. Yeah. So the blizzard of 78, it is not just legendary for that blizzard, that storm that made the, that started the career of Michael Dukakis. <laughs> the blizzard of 78 was the site of the greatest brain freeze in history. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. That was Tom Shalhoub. You can see Tom late nights on Fox as the host of Red Eye. You can also see him on The Tonight Show as one of the ragtime gals, you know, that barbershop quartet who sings modern songs. And you can follow him on Twitter at Tom Shalhoub. That's S-H-I-L-L-U-E.
Now, Alex and I grew up in very snowy climates, and after last week's blizzard, we have some very strong opinions about how people handle storms these days. I, as you know, went to school in Syracuse, so snow was just part of our daily lives. And I feel like just growing up, like you grew up in Colorado, I grew up in uh, Hartford, or Weathersfield specifically. But, you know, so it's like you just kind of knew snow was part of your Snow is coming. Life, yeah. Right. And I feel like now when storms come, everybody loses their shit. And everybody's like stocking up as though the apocalypse is coming. And everybody's totally wussed out. I don't understand why that happened. No. It's so crazy no, to and, me. In New York especially, I remember growing up, you know, the, uh, the winter of 97, you know, here in Buffalo, New York, were just devastated by the snow. And, and even, mm-hmm. I mean, even... I, there were just always these historic snowstorms growing up that would leave the city like you know, completely covered. And now it's you better run out and buy your kale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. There's an organic market still open, mm. you know. Hi. Now the storytelling scene. Yes, there is a scene, a very vibrant scene, all across the country, and specifically here in New York. The storytelling scene lost one of its members this week to L.A. Everybody keeps moving there. David Crabb has been a vital part of the scene for years, and we're so, so bummed to see him go, but we're very happy for him. This is a story he told at our three-year anniversary show about the benefits of finally having health care. Uh, basically, I have to admit, before about orthopedic doctors and uh, the interns and about how they are guys that used to play sports and they're jocks and boy they are not lying. I have the hottest fucking orthopedic staff in the whole world. So I get there because I have to have these MRIs and uh, I've never had an MRI before and the first thing I have to do is get this series of injections in my shoulder. So I go into this very, very cold room, and I'm laying, you know, in the gown, and it always writes so that, like, your underwear ass is showing, and, and it's just a very vulnerable position. And when I look up, and the hottest dude I've ever seen in my life, uh, he's, he hasn't shaved, he's doing the stubble, he's probably, like, 28 years old, his pecs are literally ripping out of his shirt, like, the buttons on his shirt are doing that, you know what I mean? to me about what's happening where I'm trying so hard to look at him in the face that I feel like it's creepier than if I just like checked him out. You know what I mean? It's that locker room mantra I had in middle school like don't look down, don't look down. And he's talking about what's going to happen and as he uh, readies the injection area um, another doctor comes in. At this point I'm laying on my side and I look so everything is like I'm seeing everything on its side and the hottest like brief guy comes in. He's so hot he's Bursting out of his shirt, everything. He's wearing khakis. I don't know how they cut khaki. I've never seen khakis like this on a man. His eyes, balls, everything bursting out of his head. And he looks up and it's shit's like up in my grill, like sideways. You know? Looking up at him, I shake his like warm giant hand, and he starts to 
tell me more about what they're gonna do to my body and how they're gonna touch me. And I'm like, how insurance is awesome. painful and it is it's immediately very very painful it stings quite badly and they're watching a monitor because what they have to do is it's a very sort of delicate area in there so they have to get the needle in just the right spot and they're standing over me I can't see them anymore and this is all I hear all right yeah a little deeper back oh yeah okay, yeah just a little bit off to the left oh yeah that's right like over I'm just laying there. It is like the weirdest, hottest, most painful David Cronenberg sort of like sex experience. I can't put my finger on what I'm experiencing. I want it, but I don't, but I do. Um, and the whole time I'm just staring at this like khaki bound basket of dick. Um, so they wrap me up and they say, You're gonna go to the room now, you're gonna get the MRI. Fine. So I go and I meet the technician, who is this lovely woman named Becky. She's wearing baby blue scrubs with little pink marimbas all over them. Um, and she takes me in the room. Um, how many of you have had MRIs before? Okay, fair amount of you. So, uh, so I'm like, yeah, I've, I've seen them on TV. I know what happens. I lay down on the little table in my little gown. And then I look up above my head into this tunnel that seems much smaller once you're about to go inside, and I suddenly feel like Jo Beth Williams in that scene in Poltergeist where she's running down the hallway. Carolyn! And I'm at Becky and I'm like, I'm not so sure. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. And I don't know if like heights or like I walk under ladders. I'm just, I'm fine. And I'm starting to freak out a little bit. She's like, it's going to be fine. Put these earplugs in. We're gonna put headphones over it. Do you want music? And I'm like, sure. And all of a sudden, like, I'm so scared that like picking the right artist is like the biggest challenge. And I just can't think. I'm like going through my Spotify playlist and I'm like, the Smiths. She's like, yes. so I go to the tube and I immediately get restless leg syndrome. My legs are pipping and bopping and squirrel. I mean, I'm going crazy. And then this comes through the headphones. Sing me to sleep. <laughs> A suicide song. In my hand, I have a little balloon that I can pump if I'm having a panic attack. And as soon as I hear the first thing, the first done, it's like a four-minute cycle of over a little fly, so distant because I'm hearing music in the cheek, and they're like old-ass cost headphones, they're not like good headphones. Through the earplugs, as soon as it's over, the first rattling, I just squeeze the balloon, squeeze the balloon. So she comes in and she pulls me out and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm just, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm a man. I'm not, I don't have, I don't have fear, uh, but I don't feel good in there. And, and she says, oh, do you want a blindfold? And I look at her and I'm like, do you hate me? Like, like, what kind of rational, oh, you're terrified? Do you want to lose one of your major senses in addition to what's already happening? And I say, no. I'm talking to her, and we're going back and forth, and I'm starting to just sort of, I realize I'm doing that anxiety thing where I'm filling the time with questions, just trying to not go back in the tomb, this little, like, you know, cylinder terror. And as I'm like, ask her, like, what if I don't go? What I mean, will it waste this trip? And what if I come back for other ones? I've seen that you can do stand-up MRIs, and I'm asking her these questions, and as I'm, I'm talking, I see her look through the glass at the other technician and give a look, like a, it's totally one of those, like, we got a live one here. <laughs> 
and in my heart, I'm just like, I'm a man, fuck you, put me back in the tube, you know? And I go back in the tube, I have my headphones on, and the music starts up again. This hospital, I guess they don't have the budget to pay for these subscriptions, uh, Pandora, so I get a commercial. I hear glass break and a woman sob, and then a man says, Every 30 seconds in the United States, a woman suffers domestic abuse. It's a song I dance to so much, it is a great dance for a song, but in this little MRI tube it doesn't work, I hear... Enjoy the silence! <laughs> and I realize that I feel this coolness on the side of my face, and I realize I'm crying. I am, I am, I am, I am sobbing, and then I realize that there's a camera, and that they can see me in there. Just delicately trying not to squeeze the balloon, you know? And I take this really deep breath, and I have this panic moment. People talk about like car accidents, how everything goes in slow motion for a minute, and I kind of beam out of that little tube, and I look at the room, and I look at this like multi-million dollar machine, and I think of all the trained staff that are there, and I see my stupid little white ankle sock feet sticking out of the end of this giant machine. And I start to think about the last few years of my life. Um, six years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And I had like 155 pounds on, I was really sick that I got down to 117 pounds. I called him my Johnny Depp cheekbone face. And people would tell me, you look great, and I was like, thanks, I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such a horrible time, because I didn't have the means and the resources to take care of myself. And um, I just reminded myself that in that moment, I did. And it was a beautiful experience, and a lot of people don't have it. And the anxiety of being in this space for another 20-minute cycle of MRIs is nothing compared to the anxiety of feeling sick and feeling like I'm dying and having issues that I can't resolve because I don't have the means to. So I just took a deep breath and I relaxed and I went through 20 more minutes of rattling, 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 rattling. And then I hear Becky come through my headphones and say, Mr. Crab, we're all done. At which point, I squeeze the balloon and say, Get me out, Becky! Get me out of the machine! Get out, please! Uh, At which point, she runs in with all her pink marimbas rattling and she ejects me, ejects me, and I sit up and everything in me wants to just like wrap my arms around her and hug her, but they don't. So, without fear. Um, uh, a few days later, they told me uh, what was wrong. I found out that I tore my labrum, they found arthritis, uh, the doctor thinks I've been dislocating my shoulder for three years and relocating. It is a mess in here. But you know what? It's not really that surprising, because like I said, I'm about to be 40. <laughs> and you know what? I couldn't be happier about it. That was David Crabb. David is the author of the memoir, Bad Kid, which is based on his phenomenal solo show, which I can't recommend enough. You can also follow him on Twitter at TheDavidCrab. That's crab with two Bs and a C. And of course, we wish David, Jack, and their dog, Charlie Whitepaw, well in L.A. All right, so now we are going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus from the live show to crank out more podcast episodes. The next one is going to be either March 30th or March 31st. You can find out the latest by joining our mailing list at yumsthewordshow.com and by following us on social media, or what I like to call ice cream social 
media. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can get all the news there. And if you're in the Philadelphia area on Valentine's Day, I will be in town. I will be performing with this great organization called First Person Arts, and I am going to be hosting their anti-Valentine's Day show, or what they like to call the 6th Annual X-Files, as in E-X. X-Files Story Slam, that is on Valentine's Day. Tickets and details at firstpersonarts.org. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton, who wrote some of the music. And the theme song is by Mark Radcliffe. Special thanks to Vince Fairchild, Michael Cedar, Danny Ortiz, and Megan Deneen. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. Thanks for listening. Happy Groundhog's Day, everybody. And until next time. So I was like, maybe I should get milk. I don't even buy milk on a normal day. So I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing with all this milk. Yum's the word.